the planet is in dire straits, and if we're going to have a chance in hell of really turning the corner here, we need the wisdom of all of these approaches. So how do we begin to gather the wisdom of over 200 distinct approaches to the natural world? And that led me to really using Wilbur's framework, an integrative framework, to see how each of them were highlighting a different aspect of reality and an important part that we need to include if we're really going to make some progress here. When it comes to like climate change, there is dispute over some of the facts, but the facts are pretty darn clear. Where it gets interesting is when the worldviews get involved. So it's more a clash of worldviews than it is a clash of facts and, and how different worldviews relate to those facts. Greetings, future fossils. I'm Michael Garfield, welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. When I think about that, I often think of philosopher Ken Wilber's term, cosmic address, not just your spatial and temporal coordinates, but where you're located along the continuum of developmental stages of consciousness and the states of consciousness accessible to us, regardless of our age and wisdom, there's that interior dimension to understanding someone's total address. And it's often neglected in current society in our emphasis on the quantifiable, the external, the measured in the ways that we understand in a kind of a rather naive way, metric and measurement. Somebody who completely transformed the way that I think about these things was my graduate advisor, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens. When I was a student at his integral theory program at John F. Kennedy University. And in the last 10 years since I graduated from that program, Sean's life and work has taken on some very interesting new dimensions and qualities. And it's with great pleasure that I bring him onto the show today to talk about adopting a multi perspectival meta view of ecology, of society, of social impact, of wealth and value. It, this is going to blow your mind. But first, I want to take a moment to thank all 48 people who have reviewed Future Fossils podcast on iTunes. We live in a world where algorithms determine whether somebody is going to listen to this episode or not. And so if you have left a review, if you have given Future Fossils a five-star rating, on Apple Podcasts, then you're helping people discover this, which obviously I am immensely grateful to you for, because this is a project about serving as many people as possible with inspiring and intelligent conversations. Also, a big thanks to the five new Patreon supporters I have this week. Big ups to Bob Tajima, Frank Weiss, Andrew Thompson, Ethan, and Pamela Shapiro, Five new additions to our roster of folks with access to exclusive and early release episodes, like the remaining three hours of last week's conversation with Charles Shaw, which I swear one day I will make public, but for now is available in its entirety to Patreon supporters, along with hours and hours and hours of new music and the triptych of recordings I made with film scholars J.F. Martell, John David Ebert, and Barry Vacker about Blade Runner 2049 and the social impact of science fiction on our collective imagination of the future of the human species. So if you want to check those out, all of those recordings are available to any level of support at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield along with the panel discussion I did last week at the Body Hacking Conference here in Austin, Texas, with somatic therapist Saj Razvi about his work with the FDA-approved clinical trials for MDMA-assisted treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. I also have three hours of live acoustic electronic guitar music I will be posting to patrons at the $5 level here very soon in the next couple weeks, including the show that I played for the MAPS MDMA Phase 3 Trial Benefit Dinner just recently. All right, shilling for Patreon complete. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. If you find Sean as inspiring as I do and you want 
a first-hand encounter in the design of wisdom economies, then you can join us at the Meta Capital Seminar happening this April in Iceland, in Reykjavik. And uh, details for that can be found on his website at metacapital.net. And with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce to you integral ecologist and organizational development coach and consultant, one of the great influences in my life, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens. It's exciting to have you on the show, man. I We really haven't spoken all that much in the 10 years since I've been your student. Yeah, yeah, it's great to see you. And yeah, I've been, as you know, I've been kind of tracking you over the years and enjoying just your exploration into music and art and psychedelic kind of, you know, tribal, you know, you know, dynamics and explorations and, and also getting into these really key topics and themes that are right at the heart of what do we do on a, on a planet that's totally amazing and, and crazy and burning at the same time? So, mm. A place that I'd like to start with you is in how you're... Let's, let's rewind a little bit here. Before discussions of meta-capital and social impact and, and talk about your work with integral ecology. Because I feel yeah. like starting it in the you know, where we met in the academic and in the the focus on, you know, understanding perspectives on the natural world. I think that's a great place to start. So how did you, how did you get into that and how did that develop? When I was growing up in Coos Bay, Oregon, which is on the coast of Oregon, I did a lot of hunting and fishing with my dad, spent a lot of time outdoors and just really developed an amazing affection for you know nature and and animals and so when i went to college in lewis and clark in portland oregon i tried to triple major and i because i wanted to study animal consciousness so that was my focus for um, my four years at lewis and clark and so in my effort to study animal consciousness and what can we say about you know, non-human awareness, I need to study philosophy, I need to study biology, and I need to study psychology, you know, so to answer this big question around, you know, what emotional or cognitive capacities do, you know, dogs and chimps and elephants and hyenas, you know, have, I started having to take a lot of perspectives um, from different disciplines, so that was kind of the real first formal expression of kind of my integral impulse was taking a a juicy topic that is multifaceted and then having to come at it from lots of different angles. Alongside of my academic work studying animal consciousness, I worked for the Lewis and Clark Outdoor Program. So I would lead outdoor trips every weekend and during the spring break and Christmas break. We'd go backpacking, kayaking, you know, um, hunting edible mushrooms and building igloos and all kinds of amazing things. So I was doing a lot of outdoor education, but I was reading a lot of environmental philosophy. And so all of this just really, you know, deepened my interest in big philosophical issues and how do we relate to um, the earth. And then when I went to Kenya as part of an overseas program as a junior in college, I decided to do my main project over a six-month period in Kenya on concepts of nature and how different worldviews of nature played a role in how we understood nature, how we interfaced with the natural world, whether we had an extractive orientation, whether we had a a reverence and sacred orientation and so forth. So I looked at the ecotourism industry in Kenya I looked at several indigenous tribes, the Kakuyu and the Maha, uh, Maasai, um, and how they related to the natural world. And then I looked at kind of the Western views that came in and kind of colonized it through notions of national parks, right, and, and kind of maintenance and kind of the stewardship model. So that, in a sense, really was kind of the beginning of integral ecology, because I obviously had this big background in animal consciousness and environmental philosophy, but it was when I really started looking at the intersection of human consciousness, human worldviews, different value systems, 
and how nature, the supposedly objective reality external to us, actually shows up entirely different depending on the eyes with which you, you know, see and engage that world. I was just utterly fascinated by how nature looked and felt totally different based on which worldview was looking at her. And then I went to um, Africa with the Peace Corps, and I bumped into Ken Wilber's work, and that set me on a, you know, a deep, soulful kind of exploration. And you know, in Ken's works, The Brief History of Everything and Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, which is what I read when I was there, he has all these critiques of deep ecology. And up to that point, I always considered myself a deep ecologist and, and even to some extent an eco-feminist. And I was really rattled by his critiques and I was, you know, was pissed off. And I remember writing, handwriting out all these rebuttals to his critiques and, you know, the arguments he was making against deep ecology. But what was fascinating in retrospect is I knew he was right. I, I knew he was really nailing them and, and highlighting some really vulnerable aspects of their orientation, but I was still so identified with it, I kind of went went out kicking and screaming, even though part of me was awakening to the truth of what he was pointing to. So it was kind of this existential thing of realizing, wow, what he's saying is really powerful and important, and for me to really embrace that, I actually have to let go of a whole set of perspectives around the natural world that I've had for a long time, and this is kind of the retro-romantic you know, orientation. And so I spent a lot of my time kind of arguing with Ken in my own mind around um, what I started to call integral ecology. And Yahoo had just been born when I was in Africa. And so when I started traveling in Asia after I left Peace Corps, it was a cool thing for these backpacker travelers to get an email address, right? Because this was like, this was like brand new internet, right? 1995, 96, 97. And, and so I, I got integral ecology at yahoo.com, right? And so that was kind of like the first time I used integral ecology in kind of a concrete, literal way. And then from there, I traveled around, went to graduate school. When I landed in grad school, I was very clear that I was writing my dissertation on integral ecology. So whereas most people are still kind of trying to figure it out on um, what they were going to focus on, I was just like... So of the 45 papers I wrote during my four years of coursework in my doctoral program, 40 of them were on integral ecology. So I was able to use every single paper that I was assigned in all my classes to basically write integral ecology. And I got Michael Zimmerman to join my committee. And when I finished my dissertation, I had like a 300-page manuscript. And... Then with Michael, after I was done with the dissertation, we said, let's make it a book. So I expanded it to 1,200 pages of manuscript. So, you know, quite a much larger um, endeavor than the original dissertation. And, you know, now I call it the doorstop because it's, you know, basically as big as <laughs> sex, ecology, spirituality. And you'll recognize, you know, this wonderful image that you drew for me. And I also have it on the wall right back here, the original. So, original Michael Garfield right here. <laughs> so, so thank you again for that. I think the main thing that drove me with integral ecology was asking myself, how many different approaches to the natural world are there? Because I was aware of deep ecology, I was aware of ecofeminism, I was aware of eco-psychology, you know, like, there was like four or five that I was aware of, but I said, you know, there's other approaches, so how many are there? And I asked people, I said, you know, what do you think? You know, there are 10 or more than 10. Most people, if they were being crazy, would say like 20. Well, I started making a list of them. I started doing a lot of research. And, you know, there's community ecology, there's evolutionary ecology, there's population ecology, there's ecosystem ecology, there's systems ecology. You know, it's just like it goes on and on and on. Ends up there's over 200. So there's about 80 schools of ecology you know, like systems-based ecology, 80 schools with their own dissertations, their own academic journals, their own conferences, their own research agendas. And then there's about 120 schools of environmental thought, such as deep ecology, ecofeminism, conservation psychology, and so forth. So I asked myself, 
200 approaches to the natural world, and none of them are really aware of any of the others. I mean, usually in a best case scenario, one school might be aware of two or three other schools. So community ecologists are aware of population ecologists and behavioral ecologists, but they probably don't know anything about deep ecologists or you know any number of other types of ecology or environmental thought. So I felt the planet is in dire straits, and if we're going to have a chance in hell of really turning the corner here, we need the wisdom of all of these approaches. So how do we begin to gather the wisdom of over 200 distinct approaches to the natural world? And that led me to really using Wilbur's framework, an integrative framework, to see how each of them were highlighting a different aspect of reality and an important part that we need to include if we're really going to make some progress here. So this is what I, I feel like a a motif or a tactic or something that I've I've learned from you as the Sean Hargens approach, which yeah. is find everyone who's who's doing this in no matter what way you know, and yep. then figure out where where the missing bridges are between the disciplines, and it's this multi-methodological pluralism which is yep. you know the term that I, I picked up at one of the classes in the integral theory JFKU program that you roped me into all those years ago this is such a stark contrast to what I, I remember coming to you with this this wound which strangely has not it's like the stigmata it's still mm-hmm. here <laughs> yeah. um, but the wound yeah. the wound I received as an undergraduate student where I, you know, I went to my advisor and and said, "Hey, I want to study the role of mind, language, perception, and consciousness in the evolutionary process as part of a massively like uh, cross disciplinary." survey of the literature on emergence and self organization, and like try and start to pick this apart. And he said do you realize that the university system operates as a series of medieval guilds and that it's a tragedy, but it's the reality of the situation and that you can't specialize in synthesis. And now 13 years after he said that to me, we're living in a world that where it's clearer by the day that work like yours not only should be done, but must be done because we're having to articulate or, or like puzzle out perhaps is more like accurate new syntax of these fields of knowledge, you know, how do we put this all together? Hunter Motz of the Mixed Mental Arts podcast, he seems to explore this constantly, this issue of there sort of being, we've fallen off the back of the treadmill as far as expertise, like specialist expertise is concerned. So how do we put this together? And it's, I think, of note that if you look at all of human activity and economic activity as a subset of ecology, you right. know, if you look at the flows of energy and information through human civilization as some tiny little piece of that much larger interspecies communication network, then really like your, your work ad- adapts very intuitively and, and obviously and immediately to issues of managing the surfeit of knowledge that and information that we have at our disposal about how we you know struggle through this this reappraisal of value and meaning and and purpose and impact and all this stuff in society so so you've got from there to there and how is that <laughs> well you're right to point to what I call my superpower, right? If, if I was to say, what is my superpower? It's meta-integration, right? It's this ability to look at a lot of different approaches to a single topic or issue and start to architect a, an orientation that really weaves it together. Um, you know, and so I did that with integral ecology, right, and identifying the 200 major kind of approaches to the natural world and then seeing how they could fit together in a, in a way that's useful. I'm doing that with the Enneagram system and what's happening behind me. And that's also what I'm doing with the meta capital work and the meta impact work. Um, you know, so, and I think we really do need to cultivate this integrative s- synthesizing orientation. And it's one of the big challenges because 
there's what's, you know, I often call the complexity gap, which is this gap between our level of consciousness and our ability to manage complexity and the amount of complexity we find ourselves in, in our day-to-day world and in business and in organizational leadership and so forth, right? And so the capacity to be integrative in our orientation in many respects, has a vertical developmental dimension to it. We actually have to evolve our consciousness to be more capable at integrative thinking and feeling, right? And so, you know, our university system is in this guild system, as you mentioned. It's still very much in an orange-green postmodern you know, modality. Oh, hold on, hold on. Back up. I don't know how many people in the audience are like familiar with the human developmental color coding language of spiral dynamics and stuff. So maybe introduce people to that. Yeah. So just orange is, you know, rational scientific mode of consciousness and green refers to a postmodern, prolistic, you know, kind of, you know, environmental orientation consciousness. And, you know, so rational scientific modes are much more about achievement and measurement and kind of, you know, it has more of an extraction orientation, whereas the postmodern kind of environmental minority diversity based consciousness is, you know, is a response to that and kind of the downfall and shadow side of the scientific, you know, enterprise. And, you know, and so but it's really only at the limits of the postmodern orientation that you start to see the importance of integration. So as a culture and as a global society, we're just now really entering into an integrative mode where the the overwhelm of the information is forcing us to develop strategies of integration. In fact, one of the books that I started to, to map out, it'll probably be a decade before I get to it, is basically a book on integration and like what are the top 10 strategies of integration that are used by you know, different disciplines and approaches and pioneers so that we can see the different ways we can go about integrating. Because I think we have to build that skill set as a global society because more and more of our challenges and issues require some mode of integrative thinking and action. Um, and so from ecology, you know, I've always had this really deep passion for, you know, the state of the natural world and how do we protect it and, you know, and, and what can we do And so in the organizational consulting work I do with businesses, we started looking at triple bottom line approaches. We started looking at multi-capital frameworks. And this pattern that I have of doing the meta move, right, um, emerged where I started saying, okay, what are the different kinds of multi-capital frameworks that are out there? So I started gathering them and I ended up having about 20 of them. And some of them had three types of capital. Some of them had, you know, four, five, seven And so I started doing meta-analysis on that to see what are the deeper integrative patterns that are occurring in these models and what would like an Uber model look like? What would be the meta-meta version of all of this that that I could put together? And so that led me to, you know, the current version of the meta-impact framework, which has 10 forms of capital. Um, And all of this is around this move from a focus on financial capital to different types of value, right? And this is what's so great about the integral models. It highlights that there's lots of different types of value. And if you leave out one kind, you're really doing a disservice to reality. You know, it's actually a violence against the cosmos. And so I was looking at how different models have attempted to include psychological value, social value, natural capital, natural value, human skill and capacity, health and well-being, right? And it's really, you know, in a sense, the meta-impact framework is the integral ecology framework. And in that, for us to, you know, really change our ways with respect to the environment, we need to change the economics of how we do business. We need to change the capitalistic system and our orientation to it. And so I more and more started to realize that kind of doing my environmental rah-rah serves a purpose, but until we really wrestle with capitalism, you know, it's almost like, what's the point? You know, so I increasingly started seeing the value, even though I know nothing about economics and I'm just a, a newbie when it comes to the business, but realizing like that's where the, the problem lies and that's where the solution lies, you know, in some important respect. Even though we need a multi, you know, front strategy and uh, everyone bringing their unique gifts to the table. Um, so I, what I love about the Men Impact framework is I feel like it's, it takes all the philosophical work I did around integral ecology and it finds a kind of public front-facing model that really is deeply informed by integral ecology, but 
presented in kind of an organizational or business context that is really grabbing people's attention. And more and more people who are not familiar with the integral movement or Ken Wilber's work are responding to the Meta Impact Framework in a way that no one ever even responded to the integral ecology work. So there's some way in which this particular modeling is the simplicity on the other side of the complexity and really seems to be grabbing people's attention. And, and it feels like the first time an integral model that I've created is actually going outside of the integral community. And so that feels very exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. So I, a couple months ago, I had Sophia Rockland on the show, and she had just graduated from a master's program in ecological economics. It was mm-hmm. this, you know, looking at the you know, materials and, you know, like palm oil. And yeah. If you look at the entire world economy through the lens of palm oil, like what do you see? And and she critiqued the idea of merely opening up natural so-called like ecosystem services like carbon yeah. recirculation into, you know, a market estimation, you know, this idea that maybe if we can just evaluate, you know, come up yeah. with a number of like how much good globally this acre of rainforest in the Congo is doing, then we can keep people from developing it because we've provided an economic incentive. And she says, she said exactly what you said. She said, yeah, except the problem is, what is a tree doing? Whatever we say belies a particular perspective that then like externalizes all of the other things that the tree is doing. And we never get to the end of it. And we, you know, in the words of Rene Magritte, you know, every painting starts as a romance and ends as a rape, you know? So like, if we're talking about the movement into an integral and, you know, meta methodological approach to commerce and the flows of societal yeah. whatever, then what is it? What does meta capitalism look like? You know, yeah. how, what, how do you see these businesses actually kind of putting this new meta perspective into practice? Yeah, great, great framing and question. So, one of the things I really bumped up against in my integral ecology work was kind of this point you're making that so much of the environmental movement and triple bottom line thinking has stayed within the systemic reductionistic external mode of basically putting numbers on things. And while that's important and has a really crucial factor and it's gotten us pretty far that when it comes to like climate change, there is dispute over some of the facts, but the facts are pretty darn clear. Where it gets interesting is when the worldviews get involved. So it's more a clash of worldviews than it is a clash of facts and, and how different worldviews relate to those facts. And so this is where if you don't include the first person and second person dimensions, right, the subjective and intersubjective dimensions of environmental realities, and you only focus on the third person or systemic objective, interobjective realities, that we're not going to save the environment through a you know, third person objective approach to the triple bottom line. And there's a case to be made that it's actually perpetuating the problem and making it worse. So one of the big things that integral ecology puts forth is that for us to really make some headway with protecting the environment, we have to figure out how to include the subjective and interceptive dimensions of reality in the process. And so my background originally was in animal consciousness, right? And looking at how would our ecology, our, our science of ecology change if we actually recognize the sentience of the organisms that are part of that ecology, right? And there are only a handful of scientifically trained ecologists that do that, right? And there's some fascinating work. It's getting more and more accessible, and you're seeing more examples of it. But, like, for instance, there was some work done a few years ago around, you know, the wolves that were reinduced into Yellowstone, and how they were just having a field day, a buffet with the elk and the moose because the elk and the moose and deer no longer had fear of um, the wolves. And so they were just getting slaughtered. So this ecological analysis looked at the role of fear in the predator-prey relationships and the importance of that emotion um, and the emotional dynamics between predators and prey. Now, obviously, they were not making a case that these animals were conscious of their emotions in the way that human beings can be. But it highlights how when we include emotions in the ecological science, 
and start to see the contribution it makes and the importance of including it in order to understand behavioral patterns and different feeding dynamics and you know and migrations and and breeding you know so so it's fascinating to see how it's possible to include the first and second person into what's generally thought of as kind of a quote scientific endeavor so the same thing with triple bottom line when you look at people planet profit those three kind of bottom lines are almost exclusively defined and operationalized in a lower right systems interobjective set of metrics and externalities that really is just more of the same and so what I wanted to do was like, what would happen if we actually defined people, the bottom line of people, in a way that included their psychology, included their relationships? What would it look like to, you know, include the planet as a bottom line that included, you know, not just nature in her externalities, but nature in her internalities, in in terms of her own cultures, her own intersubjectivities um, among species and across species. Right. And so, like, how do we actually kind of integralize the triple bottom line? And so I rearrange them across the quadrants instead of just having them in Wilbur's, you know, systems quadrant. And I have the people bottom line across the top of, you know, um, kind of the psychology and behavior. And then I have the profit bottom line on the right hand side in terms of kind of behavior and systems. And then planet is on the, the bottom, which includes the culture quadrant and the systems quadrant. So then that leaves the, this kind of left-hand axis. Like, what do we put there? Well, it's interesting. When you look at the efforts to expand the triple bottom line, most – and people add a fourth one. Almost, you know, like 75% of the time, the fourth one they add is purpose. And one of the reasons I believe they add purpose is because they're trying to balance the overly systemic, reductionistic – focus of the other three bottom lines of ecology, you know, planet, people, and, and profit, and they're trying to bring in the interiors. They're trying to bring in purpose at an individual and collective level. And then that fits perfectly with this mapping that I'm highlighting, where then purpose is the in, interiority of the individual and the collective. And so by taking these terms that are already kind of embraced and used out there, like triple bottom line, and kind of repositioning them, kind of taking back the words and redefining them in an integral way, we can continue to use them, but now we're using them more in an integral fashion. And so I'm doing that with capital as well. So there's these 10 types of capital or 10 types of value. So like human capital, health capital, financial capital, manufactured capital, social capital, psychological capital, and so forth. Generally in the literature, most of those forms of capital are defined in exclusively third-person objective terms. But what happens when we start looking at financial capital in terms of the first-person, second-person, and third-person metrics? So the third-person metrics of financial capital are all the financial reports that we think of when we think of financial capital. But the first-person aspect of financial capital is our own emotional and psychological relationship to money. Right. And essentially our shadow. And when we look at the second person aspect of financial capital, that includes power dynamics and how money is often part of different, you know, haves and have nots and power dynamics. And and so by including the first and second person aspects of financial capital allows us to have our financial reports and see how healthy or unhealthy the financial system of any given organization is. But it also allows us to look at what are our own emotional dynamics in relationship to money, and then how are how is money playing out interpersonally between people in terms of power dynamics. And so then we have an integral definition of financial capital. Financial capital includes the financial reports, the power dynamics, and our first-person subjective, you know, emotional, spiritual relationships to money. Right? And then we start to really have a much fuller sense of what are we talking about when we talk about financial capital. Um, and then the same holds true for all 10 capitals where they have a third person dimension and then they have a first and second person as well. And in that sense, we start to really take a set of terms and concepts that have been the problem and we redefine them and recast them within an integral, multidimensional kind of framework that allows us to think and, and act very differently than what we currently are doing. So 
in working with businesses and you know you've got this uh the upcoming meta impact seminar in iceland we're actually working with the government of iceland and it's all very exciting from where i'm sitting anyway to see this stuff rolled out into the real world in this way like you said a moment ago there is a sort of inescapable developmental aspect to this that the deeper wider we develop ourselves as individuals the more capacity we have for taking multiple perspectives on a phenomenon and so there's this thing about you know like an, an organization can only grow as far as the shadow of its ceo will you know like that yeah. that issue of how is it in your experience working as a, an advisor to very these organizations and institutions how do people receive this stuff? Or like, do, do people have difficulty moving from a single or triple bottom line into a, a totally meta view of things? And then like, do they understand the incentives for this? Or like, yeah. where's the, do you see hangups and noise yeah. at this boundary? Yeah, it's a, a great set of considerations and questions. In my organizational consulting, what I generally see is that the organizations has the systems they need um, they have the procedures, they have the customer base, they have, you know, kind of what they really need to be a successful business. And generally, it's the interpersonal dynamics or the emotional dynamics of the leadership, right? So, so again, it's like they have what they need in a third person sense, where they're screwed up is in the first person and second person dynamics. And then that drives the organization into some, you know, challenge or issue that then they have to work through. So part of what the Meta Impact Framework does and what I just try and do in general with my integral work is you have the very engagement with it actually serve the integrative process within the individuals. And, you know, Wilbur talks about this as the kind of the psychological activation of even, you know, learning about integral theory, right? There's, it, it tends to be this catalyst in and of itself. And this is why in the context of software development, as we're developing value accounting software, we're looking at how do we do that? And this value accounting software is based on the Meta Impact Framework and it's a way of inputting first, second, third person data into a mobile device, for instance, that then creates dashboards, right? So we're creating the user interface with that process so this actually grows and evolves consciousness through the interaction with it, right? So that we actually are evolving the awareness of the employees just by interfacing with the framework. What we often see is that most of like the 10 capitals are already being generated in the organization. So it's not that they need to all of a sudden, if they're focused on financial capital and manufacturer capital and human capital, that we have to then sell them on, well, now you also need to be cultivating these other seven types of capital. No, usually what's happening is they're already generating capital in most of those other 10 forms. They're just not aware of it. They're not tracking it. And so what we start with is showing them how they're already generating that value and then how might they start to track that over time. This They get very excited about this because initially they feel like they have to make a bunch of changes in order to kind of do what we're saying. And so one example I like to give is this forklifting company that I'm working with in Australia. They were selling their forklift on basically in this kind of software that allows you to track real-time data on manufactured capital, so maintenance of the forklifts, financial capital in terms of saving costs, knowledge capital in terms of real-time data at your fingertips, and then health capital in terms of safety, so reducing incidences where people get injured. But their customers, when you looked at the statements the customers were giving around the value they received from the company, they were making statements that went in all 10 forms of capital. So then like now I just have to show them, look, you're already delivering value across these other types of capital. You just need to be aware of that and include that in your story and in your pitch and then find more formal ways to deliver more of that value to the customer that you're already delivering to, right? Because all the other forklift companies are selling their products on the same four capitals you're selling yours. But if you're already delivering value across the other types of capital, then expand your story, expand your position, expand your sense of self-identity as to what you're doing and why, because you're already doing it. So, so this makes the threshold a lot easier for people to cross because they're not usually having to change so much what they're doing. They're just having to become conscious 
of the value and benefits they're already delivering and then amplify that. And then by watering those shoots, then it just naturally grows organically into them embracing more and more of kind of the framework in a sense. Do you ever get pushback from people about this stuff? I mean, and like, do, yeah. do you, is there resistance to this? I mean, or, or is it simply a matter of sort of inviting people into their... I mean, because when I hear this stuff, when I hear you talk about the meta of it and the way that it, you know, it's, it's bringing all these things together, it's revealing a new pattern of information and, and insight to people. It sounds a lot to me like the way that different brain regions suddenly begin communicating with each other under the influence of psychedelics and yeah. that ordinarily this inhibited functional right. connectivity between brain regions allows us to bumble through life seeing things in a particular way and then you know you consume something that you know vaults you into non-ordinary consciousness and suddenly you've got this whole new stuff and so it's like you're the psychedelic that these organizations have swallowed and you know i can't help but think that like it's never an entirely easy and and joyful process to like suddenly discover you know to to see your own shadow in this way or you know to realize you know all of the 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 wealth that you have been n- neglecting or you know so yeah, yeah to speak to that there is a lot of resistance and this is where my background as a integral coach comes in right being trained with integral coaching canada and their methodology is like learning how to design practices that actually align with the momentum of the client right and, and not that that's always successful, but it's like so, but that's a lot of what's happening with how I'm approaching this. The resistance is good because the resistance shows that you're in the right ballpark. You want there to be resistance, right? And I, you actually embrace that as a sign that you're headed in the right direction, that you're, you're touching in on the key place. There has to be a certain willingness of change on behalf of the organization or the leadership. So I don't really waste my time trying to convince anyone of anything. I try and work with people where there's at least a basic level of interest um, and then work with the resistance they have. Usually the resistance is around how do I sell it to my board, um, how, what are the, th- the objective metrics we can use, and then how do those relate to the financial bottom line. It almost always comes back like how does this connect to the financial bottom line because as, as holistic and integrative as people want to be, kind of at the end of the day, there's still the strong pull in our systems that we have to satisfy that. Um, And then if we satisfy that, we can open it up a little bit and kind of consider some of these more integrative, you know, elements. This is why I generally focus on looking at what value they're already creating and using the framework to show that, make that more visible. And then to say, how are you tracking that? So for instance, a lot of times organizations will provide coaching like executive and leadership coaching to their employees, but they're not including that as in their annual report of the psychological capital that they're cultivating, right? So I say, look, you're already cultivating psychological capital through the coaching program you offer employees. We just have to adjust things a little bit so that you start collecting some of the data points that are occurring in that space already. And so so it's kind of changing it from a, an informal source of data to a more formal source of data. And so that's very easy for them in most cases. And then we look at like, okay, where are all the places where we can make that little move where you're already collecting data and then we just make it a more formal process and then allows them to tell more powerful stories about what they're doing. And so these are like micro moves, right? And in a sense, it's like, I'm not asking them to make a new move as much as I'm asking them to be aware of the moves they're already making, but let's do it with more awareness. And, and then naturally, when you start to do that, it, it activates their own transformational drive, where the system starts to transform itself simply because you're creating more feedback loops. So this is one of the keys to the design around the meta impact approach, is you just want to make the value visible, because once it's visible, it's seen by the individuals and the system at large, and the individuals and system at large start to self-correct or adjust their behaviors and interactions in light of what's now visible. And so, in a sense, you know, and this is the simple subject-to-object move that drives development, 
whether you're talking about Robert Keegan's work out of Harvard with In Over Our Heads, or you're talking about the contemplative traditions and meditation paths and approaches, all of them essentially are based on the same principle. You take something that you do not see, you bring it around and make it an object of awareness, and then you can operate on this. And so with meditation, we're making our own perspectives an object of our awareness. In um, kind of you know vertical development, you're working with other people's perspectives, and you're making their perspectives an object of your awareness, right? So the contemplative traditions drive horizontal development and state training by taking what's subject to object, but that's an internal process, like making what's subject to you internally object. Whereas in vertical development, it's usually through perspective taking, perspective seeking, and perspective coordination. So it's working with perspectives outside of yourself, and then that drives vertical development. So you bring those simple principles in the context of the organization and the resistance, and you basically work with the resistance by just making things visible And that in itself generally starts to activate alchemically the space and shit starts to happen. Mm, Yeah. You know, I keep, I keep going back to this conversation I had with uh, Dan Schmachtenberger of Neurohacker Collective talking about how we're at this point where we have input coming in from everywhere. We're aware of our impact you know, in a completely unprecedented way. We're aware of how every single consumer decision we make affects every continent in some way, (laughs) but that we're sort of paralyzed by this despair because we don't have, and you know, I'm I'm speaking a very general we here, um, for many, many, many people alive today, there is not a parity between the scale at which we have become sensitized and the scale at which we are aware of our impact and we can actually trace the effects of our actions out into the world. So like, how do you see on an individual level, how do you see this shifting and you know, like what ways do you find sort of optimistic or hopeful that we're closing this gap and becoming more competent or capable or empowered as, as individuals of being able to see our impact in this new light? I used to believe that there was, you know, this like integral omega point that we are going to, right? And but more as of late, I feel that things are going to get more fragmented, and things are going to get more integrated, and that those two things paradoxically exist side by side, right? Whereas before, I used to think the fragmentation was going to lead to, you know, kind of an integrative approach, and that the integration at some point would kind of overtake the fragmentation. Now I think of it more as like kind of the bee and the flower and like the, you know, the evolutionary drive where, you know, the, the insects and the flowers, it's like this wars race, you know, this, you know, weapons race where the flowers develop more defenses and the insects get more clever and uh, accessing the pollen and so forth. So I see kind of fragmentation increasing um, and I see integration increasing. Um, and I'm not sure they're actually going to kind of meet and integration is going to win the day, so to speak. I suspect and what I see out there is people are going to become – we're more and more multidimensional. Like we're holding more and more as individuals. And so we're, going to, we're, we're getting more highly differentiated. And so that fragmentation can either be a bad fragmentation or it can be a good fragmentation. Fragmentation has a negative connotation because we usually think of it more in terms of disassociation. But if we think of fragmentation as differentiation, right, and and we think of differentiation and integration, right, those two things go hand in hand developmentally. So if we think of differentiation as the healthy form of fragmentation, then it helps us understand that fragmentation in and of itself is not bad. It's just maybe the kind of unhealthy expression of differentiation. And so if we can move kind of fragmentation um, to differentiation and then we can place that in a healthy dynamic, a dialectic with integration, we can keep moving back and forth between integration and differentiation, right? And so, you know, and this is often about making things visible, right? When I work with coaching clients, usually the driving factor is making things visible to them. When I work with organizations, it's usually making things visible to them. So I find that simple principle generally, you know, does a lot of my, the heavy lifting, you know, and that I just need to find the right things to make visible in the right sequence, right? To kind of optimize the developmental potency of what we're doing. And so working with 
the Meta Impact Framework, in a sense, is doing shadow work for an organization because the Meta Impact Framework makes visible all kinds of shadow dynamics in the organization because you're including the first and second person dimensions of psychology, of social dynamics, of the natural world, of finance, of health and wellness. And like, so it forces organizations to become very teal in a sense because they're, and I often define integral business as business that takes on looking at and seeking out their own shadow and then working with it in constructive ways. So if we think of integral business as being defined that way, that it's, it's business that does its own shadow work, then the Meta Impact Framework is powerful because it provides a methodology for organizations to do their own shadow work. And again, that's just another way of saying making something visible that otherwise is in the shadows. Yeah, you know, the... To drag this slightly out into the woo, I think uh, was the United States is experiencing its Pluto return this year. (laughs) And so this notion of the collective shadow work and this uh, reckoning that we're going through right now as a divided nation, you know, with, oh, I'm not, that's not American. I'm not that, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to unfold. Do you... In this, in this work, how has doing this work enriched you? Because, I mean, you have been working with this stuff for over 15 years at this point. And, yeah. you know, if we're going to follow the developmental markers, you, you brought up Robert Keegan and this, this notion that people who are engaged actively in personal development, we see this, this gradual progress over the course of years. How has your own understanding of the world and of your place in it and the, your impact as a human being deepened through engagement with this? Yeah, beautiful question. Yeah, there's, it's been a wild journey. You know, it's 20 years plus, And I think where I'm at right now in that process is I've shifted out of doing meta-integration at the mental level right? And it's dropping in to the heart and the, and the body. So, you know, for the last 10 years, I've really focused on Wilbur's work, Edgar Morin's work, and Roy Bashkar's work, all three of whom have very robust integrative methodologies and maps and models. And I've really worked at kind of meta-integrating those three. Like, so that's really heavy lifting in the mental space. And so I feel like in a way I've kind of I've satisfied, I've scratched that itch, right? I'm continuing to do that work and I'm very passionate about it, but there's this deeper desire to drop into the heart. And so the way that showed up for me is I had the sole impulse to start to learn to play the violin and to sing at the same time. Now, playing the violin at 44, you know, it's not an easy instrument to pick up. And learning to sing for the first time in my life is not easy. And trying to do them together is even harder. And very few people sing and and play the violin at the same time. There's only like five people in the world, basically, who do that. Um, and only two of them have records. You know, So it's like, it's really, it's not something you come across. So this is like a way in which this meta integration showed up at a deeper heart-based level, right? And, and it's forcing me to slow down, right? Because I have to really listen to the sound of the violin and match my pitch and feel that vibration in my body. So it's this cool kind of alchemical meta integration in a non-conceptual music-based, heart-based place. And so that's one way it showed up. The other way is it's dropped down even further into the belly center. I've been involved with somatics for, you know, 10 plus years and have engaged in a number of different traditions. But in the last year, I've really gotten on fire for it. And so I've been studying two traditions of somatic work, um, Emily Conrad's work and Bonnie Bramish Cohen's work. And I've been studying two types of dance, um, Japanese butoh and Laban um, analysis and movement. Um, and then two types of martial arts, um, Brazilian capoeira and Russian sistema. And so I'm working with these six different somatic traditions. It's, it's crazy. Like, like, it's total like, what is going on? And there's this meta integration thing going on where it's like, I'm wanting to highly differentiate the body and reintegrate it. And then I'm developing a method of ecosomatics, of, of moving in the environment, in nature, as nature, and using the interaction with the natural world 
as a way of working with awareness and more highly differentiating awareness and somatic experience and then how we then bring those polarities together. So this process has been an exploration of how do I take the integral metagrative theories that I've worked with at a mental level for 15 years and how do I actually bring it into the heart and then into the body and what's a movement practice in nature coming back to integral ecology in a sense, right? Because we always seem to kind of keep circling back around to key themes in our life, right? Where it's like I kind of go away from integral ecology for five or ten years and I come back. And so this is kind of my current edge is like connecting heaven and earth, right? And finding a somatic movement practice that's powerfully integrative, that's working with a lot of the distinctions, um, and this is also why in the Meta Impact Framework, there's a first-person dimension to all 10 capitals, which means there's a somatic dimension to all 10. So what does it look like to actually start to include the somatic aspect of those types of value creation? You know, And if we look at money, like how we often feel in our body when we have money or don't have money or need money or we're in debt to someone or we've borrowed from someone or we're behind on our payment, you know, it's like there's this whole somatic dimension that I just find fascinating. How do we incorporate that into our understanding of financial capital? Because you can be wealthy and totally screwed up somatically around your money. So what does that allow when we start to include that larger frame? So it's been very powerful for me in my own growth and development as these integral approaches have kind of been going down the chakras you know, and, and getting to, to the root chakra. So we're coming up on an hour here, and, and I would love to give you the, the two-part question that I, I, I give as many guests as I can remember to give, which is if we're viewing your life in light of its impact on the unborn generations. You know, if you're planting trees, you know you're not going to eat the fruit of, to use uh, Jamaica Stevens's phrase for this. Then how do you plant yourself in history here? And also, given that this may one day be like excavated by uploads or whatever, what question or what message would you communicate to that that sort of the world over the horizon of your current inquiries. Yeah, and it's beautiful. You know, Charles Eisenstein has this kind of orientation of like your heart knows of the world that's possible, right? It's like it's like we can kind of feel this possibility, this potential, and we're like called to that. And so I feel that my impact is is helping to make the morphic field of integrative thinking and being a stronger field, right? So the work I've done around Wilbur's approach and kind of building the academic basis for that and the research basis, you know, the work I'm now doing with Meta Impact and kind of looking at multi-capital systems and how, how do we bring an integral orientation to that. I really want my life to be the transmission of integrated head, heart, and hara. And so I'm really trying to continually live into that, see where I fall short of that, continually integrate the belly, the heart, and the mind, and have my models be an embodied expression of that, have my frameworks and the way I apply them with clients, um, with organizations, embody that and transmit that so that there is, at least in the Akashic record, if you will, there is a place that people can tap into where they get a powerful taste of what's possible when the head, heart, and hara are deeply integrated in profound service to a better world. And so I don't know to what extent I will have direct, you know, kind of calculable impact in that regard, but I feel very comfortable knowing that I'm increasingly living my life in a way that is true to that and that that in itself is, is helping to kind of hold that particular energetic signature and that if I can hold that signature and, and make it bigger and find others to hold it with me and for me to help hold theirs, that that in itself would be a great service. So so that's that's what I'm trying to do. That's beautiful. Sean, where can we send people to learn more about your work? You know, the best place would be our website at this point, which is www.metacapital, so M-E-T-A-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, 
metacapital.net. Um, so metacapital.net, that gives an overview of the Meta Impact Framework. It also, on one of the pages, talks about what we're doing in Iceland, which you're joining us there in April, so I'm very excited about that. And people can contact us through there and, and learn more. Awesome. Thanks a lot for being yeah, on the show. Great to be with you and looking forward to dancing in, in Iceland. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils, including Jamaica Stevens of Reinhabiting the Village, philosopher Tim Freak, cyborg musician Onyx Ashanti, digital artist and non dual philosopher Archan Nair, science fiction journalist George Dvorsky, Douglas Rushkoff floral sculptor Anthony Ward and a bunch of other great ones. So stick around and have a most excellent eon.